This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, I'm in San Francisco, California. And I'm sitting across the table from Tom Riley, brewmaster, and Dane Volek. Did I pronounce that right, Dane? You did. Okay, assistant brewmaster for Anchor Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're in this beautiful temple of craft beer, uh, one of the original craft breweries, I guess you could call it that. But this brewery here at Anchor in San Francisco is just this, uh, you know, it feels like a timeless place, uh, you know, where so much great beer has been made and so much influential beer in this history of craft beer that we have here in the United States. I'm excited to talk about the way that you all brew uh, from open top fermentation, which of course is this big, big thing. I mean, you do it both on the lager and the ale side here. We're going to talk about uh, the approaches to that. We're going to talk about uh, some of the other beer styles you brew, of course, like uh, California common and steam beer and whatnot. uh, And some of the approaches that you take towards these things, as well as some of the uh, ways that you're pushing boundaries on those things. Before we talk about that for nearly 30 years, GD chillers has set the mark for quality equipment. You can rely on GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipes and make a non alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality? And a no problem. The Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from the beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? Check out www.probrew.com to learn more about the Alchemator from ProBrew or shoot them an email at contactus at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand. I should say we uh, enjoyed a wonderful dinner last night uh, here at the Anchor Brewery, uh, celebrating the Anchor Steam Society, which I have been inducted into. Uh, Thank you all for that. It's quite a party, quite fun, and uh, great to see everybody here. Um, Let's uh, kick in first with some background. Uh, Talk to me about uh, your background, Tom, and what that path through the brewing world uh, has led you on. Sure. Um, My path to the uh, brewmaster's desk has probably been pretty unconventional. I mean, I started working here. I took a summer job in 1984 and it was just meant to be a summer job, but You're still here. Yeah, I'm still here 30, <laughs> 38 years later. Um, yeah. so something must've been going right, but, uh, I saw quickly it was a fun place to work Yeah, and it was, a, a an interesting place to work. Fritz Maytag was a really interesting person to work for and, and it was a really kind of an exclusive little little club I was in working for Fritz and all the, uh, the brewers making Anchor Steam beer, which in the in mid-80s when I started, you know, there weren't very many small brewers out there. Um, no, it, it wasn't like you looked at it and said, hey, I want to be a brewer as a career. That would be an atypical kind of uh, choice at that point. Yeah, that, that wasn't what I was thinking. But as I was here and the company was growing, I saw opportunities. And, and I went through many different jobs before I landed in the brew house. 
and and uh, landed you know in, in my current position. Um, I, I managed the, uh, the warehouse. I gave tours. I uh, brewed on the floor for 20 years. I managed the fermentation department. I was the assistant brewmaster for a number of years. Uh, so yeah, it, it took, took a long time to get here, and you know it's a great job. Sure, sure. How about you, Dane? Yeah, no, thanks for having us. Um, I, I had a similar route. Uh, it's been a long, long time, about 14 and a half years that I've been around on these hallowed halls of Anchor. Uh, and I just kind of got lucky. Fortune was, you know, favorable. I, I was uh, going to school at SF State, saw a posting outside of a class, uh, and eventually it's kind of a, a longer story, but eventually saw that it was stamped Anchor Brewing Company. I was a home brewer at the time. I was enjoying the elements of creating beer from the hands to the to the glass. And uh, so I, I pulled the number off the sheet. I had a couple interviews. Fortunately, the last one was with Fritz, although uh, he, he always liked to interview everybody for their sort of their final interview before yeah. it was final. Um, you weren't necessarily expecting that when you walked into the room, but that's that's what it was. And we had a nice conversation and a couple of days later, I was washing kegs on the on the keg line three days a week, nice and early in the morning, and then cutting out to go to class later. Uh, so that's kind of how it started. Uh, a lot of really dedicated people that have come through Anchor all over the years, and I learned so much from so many of them uh, that I kind of worked my way through different departments. I worked on the bottle line for quite some time. I started working in fermentation on Sundays. Uh, as I started to expand my hours, learned a little bit more about the brewing process there. And then eventually as my first full-time position, I started in filtration and filtered for a couple of years before I moved to the brew house and then eventually over to our pilot brew house as the pilot brewer and and uh, now assistant brewmaster. So it's been a lot of fun, a lot of good years, a lot of good people, a lot of good beers. This is highly unusual. In the world of brewing, I'm, you know, it is. I, this is not a story that I hear very often. We we realize that. Yeah. So, what is it about Anchor where people come and people stay? Because I find more often than not, especially as we're talking to younger brewers, they come work for a year or two, a brewery with a great pedigree, and build up a, you know, a resume that's enough to jump out and do the thing that they want to do, and they start their own brewery, and that becomes the next story here. Um, you very rarely hear that story of, hey, I've just worked here for 30 or almost 40 years. Um, what is it about Anchor? You know, what is it the company culture? Is it the way the company supports employees? Is it, I mean, what what is that piece there that you think becomes that glue that holds people here? I think a lot of the people that work here realize uh, that it's somewhat of a magical place. This is craft brew brewing mecca. And a lot of you know people from the industry come here and say that. So when you come here and you walk in and you see the copper kettles and and you hear more of the story that you know Fritz didn't buy this building as a brewery, he did create this place. Yeah, and he created it around the brew house. So you knew, you know, if whether you were paying bills or washing the dishes, you knew what you were, why you were here. Um, but a lot of us get that feeling, you know, a lot of people have moved on, who have moved through, but sure. some of us really kind of have an allegiance to this place, a lot of loyalty just to the lore. Um, the story is really important. A lot of us feel like, you know, it's our responsibility to carry it on. It was an interesting, uh, you know, I, and I love it because you, you, the brew house staff wears jumpsuits 
you know, there's this matching kind of uniform approach. But even, you know, another thing I was noticing on tap handles last night is that it clearly says union made, um, you know, which is not necessarily something that most people would put on a tap handle, you know, to sell their beer. And yet that uh, that seems to, you know, at least that interaction and respect for employees seems to be a kind of a core core tenet here of Anchor. Yeah, I think, for you know, family is kind of what comes to mind for me when I think of why I've stuck around for so long. I mean, it it becomes your family. Um, you don't realize it at first. It kind of sneaks up on you, but you find yourself maturing and there's opportunity and there's just a great, a great culture that you learn from over time. And those of us that have that feeling and, and love it here, it's pretty universal. And even people that are that are gone that we still see all the time, they still have those feelings and there's still get togethers of yeah. old employees and it's always a great time. It's even fun for for me. I was here, I guess, in twenty fifteen and former brewmaster Mark Carpenter gave us a tour and uh, of course I still have the titanium anchor keychain uh, bottle opener that he gave me then and hasn't left my keychain since that point. So we're at this what seven years now. Um but it also felt good coming in yesterday and seeing it again. You're right. It does feel like this kind of special place where it's just nice to see it. It's nice to be here. It's nice to smell the smells. Um, and it's increasingly rare, and of course, in a large urban environment like San Francisco to have a manufacturing facility making beer at this kind of scale uh, in a rather pricey in neighborhood where, uh, you know, there's some, I mean, the real estate values alone around here uh, have, uh, have skyrocketed since you started working here, Tom. Yeah, they sure have. <laughs> uh, Fritz was always committed to keeping steam beer. I mean, it was originated in San Francisco, keeping it made here. And the people that originally bought the brewery from him had that same commitment in mind in our current ownership, Sapporo. Uh, has the same respect for the legacy and and really wants to continue making steam beer here and and always will. They've put a lot of investment into this building, which, you know, tells us that they don't have any plans on changing that. It's really important to them. Sure. Sure. And at the same time, the, the footprint has expanded a bit and you all have, uh, you all have embarked on some new things like public taps across the street where uh, you're doing some more R and D work and also, uh, you know, have a, a you know bigger public tap room for for whatnot. Um, you know, so there are some changes, and it's not like nothing is uh, you know forever here. You all are, are still continuing to push forward a little bit. Yeah, we have our core institution of steam beer and and Liberty Ale and Foghorn and Porter. But yeah, we need to push boundaries into you know what's interesting in the craft brew scene. We're all beer drinkers. We know what's going on out there, and we want to create new things. So we want to do both. And Dane can talk more about public taps and R&D. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's get into some of the brewing and we can talk about steam beer and talk to me some about the tenets of that. Uh, but before we do that, is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point. And with a more reliable supply, is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also working on a new sour beer fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation is now offering an expanded range of dry bacteria for the production of sour beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. 
So maybe let's talk about Anchor Steam first. Talk to me about Steam Beer. Uh, you know, clearly there's a history that, to this that uh, Fritz wanted to maintain and, and see through and keep it here because it's so tied to this area. Um, you know, but what is what is Steam Beer as you all define it? Oh, Steam Beer is home. <laughs> steam Beer is a style of beer. It's really a sub-style of lager that was uh, originated basically out of necessity in the gold rush days in San Francisco. You know, you had all these people coming to the West Coast. San Francisco was the hub, and basically they were going to shoot out and go look for gold and try to get rich. Uh, but there was also a city being established and growing here, and people were coming here to serve all those people. And brewers came, German brewers came, they wanted to make lager beer. They couldn't necessarily make uh, lager beer in the traditional way, no ice, no refrigeration in the 1850s. But what San Francisco offered was a really cool, really consistent climate. And so what they did was they cooled off the wort in very shallow pans, supposedly on the roof or high up in buildings. And as the night air swept over these shallow vessels, giving off steam, the beer that was being made was called steam beer. It took on the nickname. And at that time, up until Prohibition, all the breweries in San Francisco were making beer in the similar way. And so they were all steam beer breweries. After Prohibition, when modern methods were available, um, Joe Krause, who owned the, uh, the brewery at that time, was the only person to keep making steam beer in the traditional way. And nobody really knows why. Maybe he didn't have enough money for new equipment, but he's the one that kind of kept it alive at that point. And it almost died into the 60s. And what Fritz fell in love with when he came to the brewery that was just about to close was that they had held on to that traditional brewing method. They had old equipment. The beer was souring. It was infected. But they had preserved this little process. And that's what he really fell in love with. And that's what he wanted to, to carry on and prove and, and uh, continue. So then how, uh, you know, what did it look like then? And what, uh, you know, what did Fritz turn around and start uh, pushing for in terms of process improvement to kind of modernize steam beer? Because clearly the way that you all make it now is not exactly a poorly equipped, uh, sour thing on the roof, uh, you know, but you are, you have held on to some, some serious core tenants in terms of open fermentation, um, you know, and whatnot around that. So what, what is it, what does steam beer look like now in its uh, modern context? Well, the important part of the process, as I said, is that they would, um, make the beer in very shallow vessels and you just had natural cooling of the San Francisco air. Yeah. So our primary fermentation. Were they inoculating back in the day? Or, you know, or uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The German brewers brought, brought yeast. They brought yeah. lager yeast. They wanted to make lager beer. Um, but we've improved all the brewing equipment in front of that process, all the, the finishing process behind that primary fermentation process. But keeping that process pure and um, is what really gives beer, steam beer its, its signature unique flavor. And it's what makes it a substyle of lager because really nobody else in the world wants to make it. Yeah, California Common is is what people can call the same style, but nobody makes it on a big scale. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's describing the beer that Anchor makes, right? <laughs> Once you leave that copper brew house, it's a little more stainless steel than it was all those years yeah. ago. And and yeah. Fritz got his microscope out and and figured out why the beer was souring, didn't have any stability, um, and from there, you know, he he cleaned the process up and started making something that was more shelf stable, put it in a bottle in 1971 and started bringing it to the rest of the country and eventually the world. 
You only joined up 13 years after he started that. Huh? that that's kind of to me sometimes when I think about that. Yeah. That, wow. I was pretty close to the beginning of his era. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, what are, what are some of the frameworks of that? And I think it's interesting because this entire style is basically, I mean, when you look at a style guide and you look at commercial examples, the commercial example is anchors team. And so it is the paragon. It is the, the thing that, you know, people would look at, you know, around that. Um, what does malt look like in the, in the beer? What's the malt makeup? Yeah. Uh, the malt makeup has always been about, I mean, uh, um, 10% caramel malt and 90% base malt. Yeah. Pale malt. Yeah. So a pretty, pretty simple, uh, pretty simple recipe, uh, Northern brewer hops trying to hit about 33 IBUs. Um, you know, 4.9% alcohol. It's a pretty basic recipe in San Francisco, Hetch Hetchy water, you know, that we really treat very little and you've got, uh, you've got your steam beer. <laughs> as long as you do another a hundred more things, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, are there any, uh, you know, particular mash strategies that you all take in order to, you know, uh, you're, you step mashing. I imagine you're not going to the trouble of decocting something. Like we are this. step mashing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do four rests for most of our beers, um, kind of hazy beers being an odd, you know, and very recent uh, alteration of that technique. But everything else is pretty pretty much four steps. Yeah. Little temperature changes here and there. When we used to make more wheat beers, those were kind of lower starting temperatures for mashing in, doughing in. Uh, but the rest of them are fairly standard, just a little bit of alteration in time and temperature along the way. Are there any peculiarities of your brew house that uh – um, you know, the, on this hot side system that you either think, uh, add a specific character to that beer or, uh, or that you have to then, uh, uh, use all of your brewing science to, to, uh, overcome because, you know, any type of brew house, that's going to be this old, uh, is going to have sure. its own uh, personality to it. You, you go visit other breweries, you realize that they're all, everybody does things just a little bit sure. different. Um, our brew house is unique because it's copper. We think that really adds color. Um, and it's copper all the way through. It's not just. It's not copper all the way oh, through. Okay. The brew house is copper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lines underneath are, are stainless. Sure, sure. I mean, over all these years, we've had. But the vessels replaced. themselves are copper. Yeah. Oh, okay. And when then we use an open grant. And so, you know, it's not necessarily supposed to be for pre-kettle aeration, but yeah. it does happen in a grant. And so, you know, that that might add some right. slight character Steam to it. Steam jacketed vessels? Yeah. Yeah. Any other quirks to your, uh, your your mashing or your hot side process? I mean, it's just very manual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it. People are shocked if they've never been here before. Even if they've heard the stories and they're familiar, they've seen pictures and things like that. You oftentimes see people walking away from the brew house and they they kind of get that look in their eye and they turn towards you and they're like, "It it's really manual." And you're Steam like, yeah, valves are squeaking, yeah. <laughs> and the kettle is open, and boils vigorously. I think we've been grandfathered in from a safety standpoint on that. Yeah. What are some of the more manual tasks that, uh, that you find yourselves doing? I, you know, and you say manual, but of course you all are still here after all of these years. So it wasn't enough to send you running and screaming away from it. No, that's all I, we I knew. always liked that. It's yeah. what we grew up with. Yeah. We go into another brewery that's automated and we're like, that doesn't look like fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you still get into the vessels, you know, we clear out the louder ton. There's still uh, occasions every day when, People are climbing in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like our dome of secrecy. You can say anything you want in there with the other brewer <laughs> on the other side of the vessel. That's where you can have your moment together. It's your confessional. Yep, yeah. exactly. We, sure. We power wash the kettle every morning. 
So from hot side, we, we move into fermentation on that. And that's, I think, where it gets really fascinating and interesting, you know, for uh, from my perspective, because you all have giant open, shallow pan, open top fermenters. Um, walk me through that fermentation process then and, and what that looks like. What's the sequence of events? So after we hit our hot work tank, uh, we do have a cooling press. And this is part of the modern method to get it cool quickly so yeah. you don't get infection. Uh, and we cool into our shallow open fermenters, only about a foot and a half deep. So it's tons of surface area Yeah, uh, at about 60 degrees, which we figure is kind of the average ambient temperature. We can't just let it run wild like they did in the old days because we need to have some consistency. Sure. So the room is actually cooled to 60 degrees, but there's no artificial cooling on the fermenter. And they do free rise from 60 to about 75 degrees. As we cool the brew in there, we pitch our our house yeast and let it work for three days. Um, a fun story about the house yeast is when Fritz started brewing a little more, um, he might have been brewing once a month. He went to different breweries in the city. There were many at the time and borrowed yeast because we didn't brew frequently enough to keep a yeast strain going. And so nobody really knows which one ended up here because <laughs> he got Lucky Lager, he got Genesee, he got Hams. He, he went around to all the different, even went to Red Star Yeast. Um, and even Mark Carpenter, he couldn't tell you which one we ended up with. But it's an extremely resilient strain because we've been using the same one longer than I've been here. Yeah, it's a definitely a very unique part of the process. Um, we're all familiar with the smell of Anchor Steam. and you You really learn to be intimate with it quickly when you're smelling it in primary fermentation there if you're degassing samples in the morning and just watching it through its life cycle there i mean it's all right in front of you so you get to see it smell it touch it uh, it's a beautiful process of stainless steel again of course now not like the redwood cool ships that we <laughs> imagine they right. originally had although those sound beautiful too um, i'd love to find one of those somewhere yeah but that warmer fermentation temperature gives you that higher ester profile yeah. which, which really is what is unique to steam beer so it is lager but you are pushing some of that ester profile because of that warmer than typical lager fermentation temperature yeah one of the things i find interesting is that you then get to also watch it and so you know that's something that most brewers brewing in cylindroconical uh you know fermenters don't really get to do it, the, you can tell, you can measure, you can you have an idea of what's going on in that fermentation, but you can't watch it. And you all get to watch every yeah. day how every fermentation is going. Um, how do you describe the steps that, that takes over those three days of, of fermentation? That's, that's actually a really wonderful part of it that I, I don't know if we appreciate it as much because it's just part of our job, but it is really interesting and fun to come in and go, okay, that was brewed yesterday. It's supposed to be there. You know, yeah. we do measure the gravity and watch it go down, but, but visually also you can see, Hey, that's supposed to be this active and that should be coming over the top of its peak of activity. Um, and on day three, it should be, shouldn't be active anymore. If it's still active, there's, there's something going on there. So yeah, we use our eyes a lot when we uh, watch these, these steam fermentations. Yeah. I have a few too many pictures on my phone. Um, we, <laughs> Yeah, you saw us cooling that second batch of porter today. You should see it right about now. But, yeah, we gotta show you that. <laughs> um, it, I mean, yeah, it's great. It's great to see it happen, and and it's it's definitely a lot more romantic than just how what's the pitch of the bubbling in this bucket next to the fermenter, and how vigorously is gas being expelled from it. Uh, it it's a little little different feel. 
yeah, it tells us things, you know, if, if the fermentation is done and there's not, not more, much activity, we know we're going to get a good yeast collection. We know what's on the bottom that we can't see. So yeah, visually it, it really helps. Are there any uh, warning signs of trouble where you you see something going on? You're like, we should. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you can see you can see trouble when you see something that doesn't look normal. What would be something that looks abnormal that uh, might be cause for alarm as you are looking at an open top tank? Just a little foaming on day three that you know mm. you should be fermented out. You should be done. Uh, maybe more yeast on top than normal. Yeah, would be something we probably would just not collect. Uh, we want to just collect, you know, good, solid, predictable fermentation uh, yeast. And uh, the beer will slide right off of it, right into the cellar. And then we collect it up with our collecting tools and pump it back into our brink. Um, is there any any point where you end up with, like, what does unhealthy yeast feel like in that kind of environment? How do you know that uh, you may not want to use this one? Well, the the, the visuals of the, of the fermentation, if your gravity doesn't get terminal when it's supposed to, that's yeast that we would pass over, you know, if we have a, something else that we can collect from. Sluggishness. Sluggish it's fermentation. Never, never a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, how often in, in the process do you end up with a fermentation that doesn't go exactly right? I'm going to knock on the table first. We've had <laughs> issues in the, in the past. I, it, yeah. I think we've gone quite a while without yeah. any, any real issues. Uh, that usually gets traced back to an aeration problem because mm. the yeast really needs a good oxygen charge before it goes to work. And if it doesn't get it, it falls, stumbles before the uh, finish line. So we can usually trace it back to that. So yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say something that is not new at this stage, but uh, with how long I've been around here, it was new. Uh, early on when I first started brewing, we used to just batch by gallons into the fermenter. And it was only maybe a year or two after I started brewing that we started really spinning solids contents and mm. getting a little bit more data collection going so we have a consistent pitch across the whole thing. But it used to just be gallons. And of course, it's hands-on as you might be catching on to by now. So we have a five-gallon stainless steel bucket. You used to just hurl buckets into there. <laughs> yeah, it would be it, up. it would be whether it's heavy or light, it would be fifteen gallons. Now now at least we target ten million cells per degree volume. Now, now you've got uh, public taps, you've got some closed uh, fermenters also. Um have you tried making steam in a closed fermenter with the same yeast and what uh what difference could you describe the open top fermentation as making in terms of the overall uh, you know, flavor impact, aroma impact, ester production, and whatnot? Uh, great question and great segue into uh, what we talked about last night with some of this. But yeah, it's a great asset. I mean, how how flexible uh, steam yeast is, we've only learned that through using it at public taps and putting it in a different environment. I mean, putting it there in general is always going to be different just because it is closed. Right. Uh, but we've also done a lot of flexibility around, along that temperature change. Like what, do we, what if we do something that's truly a lager fermentation profile? Or what if we elevate that high end and kind of keep it up there for a while and treat it more like an ale. We've kind of done it all. Uh, and we're in the middle of Anchor Steam Week here, so we always have a couple of those beers available. Right now we've got a Vienna Steam on, uh, which is a, a take on steam beer, 100% Pacific Victor, malt from Admiral, 
uh, along with just a little bit of sauce to go with the Northern Brewer. Uh, really nice beer. We usually do a Vienna take some of some sort every year. Uh, but then we also, you know, we've played around with it in different directions. Right now, this year, we have a high gravity steam on as well that we're calling Xteam. <laughs> uh, and that's a 10 percenter yeah. with a little bit of citra dry hop along with the Northern Brewer. So it's got some spunk. Uh, it turned out really well. That was the furthest we've ever pushed it. The uh, OG was 20.2 on that brew. And it tiny bit of sulfur at the very end of fermentation, but it cleaned up within a day or two. Uh, didn't really struggle. Always does well under pressure. It's done well in a, a big swing of temperatures. So something that's always surprised me, but it's delightful to use. It's a great asset to have for public taps. Yeah, and we've been surprised with the versatility of it when, when Dane experiments with it at P-Taps. So it works just fine under no pressure with no no head pressure, you know, totally open. And then also can uh, crank it out under pressure in closed. Yeah. If you were, have you done a one-to-one test where, uh, you know, you made the same exact beer and then tried them next to each other? And, uh, you know, what would, how would you describe the difference between those two? Oh, I'm glad you said that too, because I actually meant to finish that last part by saying that I actually never have done (laughs) an exact clone per se in terms of recipe, keeping that, you know, 40 L caramel, pale malt, all Northern brewer, we have not done that. Okay. Uh, and it just, I'm not really sure that there's any rationale behind it. It's just something that I've always wanted to play with and never really try to do exactly that. Uh, I mean, we did design the public tap system to be very similar um, to the point that we even tried to do temperature, you know, four temperature rests when we first started over there. And uh, it's insanity. doesn't it's, work. <laughs> it's not what that system's designed to do. Uh, we generally do about two temperatures now and kind of climb between those two throughout the mash and the Vorloff and that works great Uh, but we have it's steam power over there just like it's steam power over here so we did try to keep things very similar uh, but never have I actually just tried the straight take it not not with steam beer yeast yeah but every beer we've come out with in the last few years has been developed from PTAPs and it's been scaled up here so we do try to make the beers you know that Dane has made uh, on the pilot system. Our Pilsner was, you know, started off over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the West Coast IPA, the Hazy, all of them. They were made there first, and then we try to make them like him over here. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, it's sure. been a fun. It's been a fun process. We're 185 brews in at Public Taps, uh, distinct brews. So bringing them back across and scaling them up is something that we've really only been doing in earnest the last couple of years, and that's been a fun adventure and a lot of learning to do. Sure, sure. You mentioned to me last night that uh, you've even playing, been playing around with uh, mixed fermentation strategies in terms of mixed open and closed fermentation. Talk, talk to me about uh, you know playing out between these two things because that sounded fascinatingly weird to me. Yeah, I mean, this is something that uh, uh, you know I've observed in Tom over the years. He has this incredible ability to work problems out. Uh, and, and, you know, as we develop new beers and we're trying to go through that process of how, do, how are we going to make this work on this side of the street, as we like to say, because, um, of course, Public Taps is directly across Mariposa Street from, uh, from the mothership here. Uh, but something that I really, really liked that I think was just brilliant on his part was this idea of, and, and it largely came from the hazy, uh, but doing, if a five brew set is what we're planning, we'll do two into the open ale fermenters. And we'll do three into the cylindroconicals. 
and it, it's fun. It creates a lot of opportunity is what we really like about it because then, of course, we don't have, we're throwing a lot of bio, if I dare say, or day zero, day one hops into the hazy, of course, um, to make that nice, juicy expression that we like and a little differentiation on uh, on that beer. Um, but we're still able to ferment in the cylindroconicals, collect that yeast because all the biomass of those hops we put into the open fermenter. And that allows us to get rid of that yeast, which at that point is almost as much yeast as it is hops, um, but then still get a nice clean collection off of the cylindroconical, and then they get blended together before going through our external dry hopping devices uh, as a, a five-brew set in that example. Well, that's really interesting. So kind of a hybrid blended approach, you know, with across multiple batches. Yeah. And it's just fun because you're throwing so much hops into that open fermenter that what it does to the head, I mean, again, it's too many pictures on the phone, but you see this (laughs) thing is just billowing in the beginning. You throw 50, 100 pounds of bio hops in there. And then all of a sudden that head knocks down, you get this brainy looking texture on top and you see these hops just breaking up and circling on top of the fermenter. It's, It's really beautiful. Yeah, that was t- definitely done out of necessity. Our conicals, you know, were put on the back of the building. We didn't have, we don't have any access to them, so we wanted to do a beer that had bio hops. And they're like, how are we going to do this? Oh, so you don't have a hopping port in there or no, any kind of means? No, of, okay. so that's what we came up with to split it up and then marry it back. That sounds like a messy open top fermentation room after uh, that series. Of Wait brews. till you see it today. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the wheat beers are always the worst. Uh, when we used to make uh, summer wheat beer, yeah, those were the ones you really didn't want to scrape. So then you're adding in a hazy IPA with a couple of batches that are going through your open top ale fermenters because we you also in addition to the lager open top fermenters for for steam beer and others. You do also have a separate room with ale for uh, open top ale fermenters. So you're saying you're making hazy IPA with that and then adding in your hops, your biotransformation hops in the open top fermenters. Are you doing that as pellets? Are you doing that as, as whole cones? Because you use a lot of whole cone here. Pellets. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we use a combination. <laughs> sure, we, we, sure. Use, we use both. We see the benefit of pellets, uh, freshness, quality, freshness aspect. Yeah. Um, yeah, for a while you got to use pellets. You, but if I could yeah. just explain, you know, when Fritz first put in uh, or first wanted to make ales, he put in a rather primitive ale fermenter, an open top fermenter. It wasn't until about 2012 where we were really out of space. We had built out and we needed more fermentation space. We put four 500 barrel conical um, unit tanks, we call them, because they can be used as primary fermenters or cellarine fermenters, however however you need to use them. So we do make a lot of our ales and IPAs in the conical fermenters, but we make our core beers up here still. When it comes to something like hazy IPA, if I think about hop usage and biotransformation, um, you know, you th- I think about, uh, you know, especially when you're adding pellets into a cylindroconical, um, that there are currents within that you know fermentation currents that are moving material through that tank uh you know kind of convection currents that tend to help break up that hop matter uh and i think about you all throwing those into a 
one, you know, shallow pan that's going to not have that same kind of convective current, maybe not, you know, necessarily be able to, uh, you know, have that kind of uh, movement through the tank where a natural kind of recirculative type of effect, um, you know, does that impact the way, you know, the hop usage then within these kinds of uh, open fermenters? There's more depth in the the open top ale fermenters that Fritz put in. They are almost like a cube. So you do have some depth. And like Dane said, you can see them churning and moving yeah yeah it's it, when you get into those fermenters to clear the yeast out at the end i mean it it is really something else it's a totally different beer than any other beer clearing out of there uh, but yeah those of you that are probably familiar with our, our what we call the third floor which is where the brew house is if you do that circle around the uh, around the building you see the the first room that you see is the lager room where we do california lager and steam and the shallow pans so we have four fermenters in there uh, and each one of those is roughly scaled to a brew. So we put four brews into that room with four fermenters. Uh, once you pass the hop room, which is just down the hall from there, then you you approach the ale room. And we only have two fermenters in there, in there, but each one is because of that cube shape, we basically have it scaled to two brews. So we can do four into a room with two fermenters. So it is it does have that depth to uh, to allow for that type of activity. Cool, cool. Let's talk about some of the other beer styles that Anchor brews. I, I definitely want to talk about Liberty Ale because it's such a important kind of pivotal beer in terms of the development of American IPA. And I think we would be remiss if we also didn't talk about Porter, especially because you've got some fermenting right now. Before we do that, with 20 years of innovation and experience, Brumation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From half-barrel to 30-barrel systems, Brumation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brumation has you covered. Visit them at brumation.com slash cbbpod to get started. Also, as craft beer's most trusted point-of-sale system, Arrived is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash cbb to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. Remember, there is no I in arrived. So let's talk about Liberty Ale for a second. Um, talk to me about the, the the parameters of that beer. I mean, you all, in some senses, are shepherding this thing still through today uh, that feels like a piece of history while at the same time trying to you know deal with all sorts of uh, uh, you know changes that have happened over many many decades, uh, the, you even if you are thinking about the you know maintaining the recipe or keeping it the same, um, the ingredients are very different these days. You know the malt that you're getting, you know the hops that you're getting. So to keep something the same, there's clearly every a year to year change in order to maintain that kind of sameness to it. That is the brewer's job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that. Uh, talk to me about um, how what you view as the beer itself. How do you define that beer itself? If it's roughly the recipe, but not exactly the recipe, how do you? Uh, it is exactly the recipe. Yeah, it's it's even more simple than steam beer. Um, 
they have a name for it now, a smash beer, single malt, single hop. Yeah. It's all base malt. It's all cascade hop in the kettle uh, and in the dry hop. So it's just a matter of keeping the alcohol, you know, uh, in line and the IBUs in line. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a pretty simple beer with a tremendous story behind it. Yeah. Yeah. You make it sound a lot easier than it is. <laughs> it's it's elegant. It's, you know, it's the brewer's job. It's our job. But the story is, uh, a lot of people don't know this. In fact, I didn't know it for a long time. You know, in uh, 1976, the beer came out in 1975, right? On the anniversary of Paul Revere's right? April 18, 1975. And I think, sometimes I try to think what Fritz was thinking. So Fritz started getting steam beer ironed out. He Porter was the second beer he made. He was excited as hell to have this little brewery. Well, what am I going to do next, right? I got a brewery. I can make anything I want. He had been through Europe. He got interested in, you know, different styles. Well, in 1976, every corporation, company in the world was about to celebrate the bicentennial. Well, he wanted to celebrate the bicentennial too, but he wanted to get a jump out in front of everybody. So he didn't celebrate July 4th, 1976. He, he celebrated Paul Revere's ride in 1975. Uh-huh. And he names it the Beer Liberty Ale. What are the parameters of this beer? Now, you know, we looking back at it, of course, as he created it, you couldn't have thought that, hey, this might set off an entire wave of, uh, uh, you know, of, yeah. of India-style pale ale in America, uh, you know, or, you know, kind of prefigure IPA becoming a dominant craft style within America. Yeah, it's just, uh, uh, I mean, he wanted to make a dry hop pale ale, and we know it all launched the revolution. When I first tasted that beer, I thought it was the most intense thing I'd ever tasted. <laughs> it was sure, a sure. mouthful of flowers and and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, it's such a nice, elegant view on, you know, the hop that we all know, know and love so well. Um, about 5.9% alcohol. You know, these days we're shooting for around 50 to 55 IBUs. I think that is one thing that as true as we've stayed to the recipe, we have ratcheted up the IBUs a little bit over time, I would say. Well, we upped, we upped the dry hops just a hair for more impact. I mean, it, you know, like I said, it was the most aggressive beer I had tasted back then. But sure. as all these other beers become more aggressive, then it tastes less aggressive. So you want to try to give, give that little punch. So we, we've increased the dry hops, which really don't increase the IBUs much. Just a little, though. The hops themselves, though, are not not exactly the same. Might be the same variety, but of sure. course, kilning temperatures have changed over the years. Picking windows, you know, uh, growers have Lots. gotten smarter about that. Of course, there's more and more, you know, differing terroir across all of these ranges. And a cascade, as we now know, grown in Oregon may differ greatly from a cascade grown in, in differing parts of the Yakima Valley itself. Uh, you know, from you all, how do you, how do you approach that? Uh, you know, do you have a, you know, an idea of what you want in the cascade that you select for this? And then, uh, you know, how does that look on a year to year basis? Well, we don't go to selection very often. Yeah. Um, we do rely on our, our growers to give us consistent sure. hops. You know, we rely on our own sensory program. Um, if we're tasting something that, it's not in line with what we think it should be. Uh, you know, we can make an adjustment, but I think the beer has stayed within a pretty tight parameter line. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our QA department does fantastic work on all of our beers. You know, we're checking 
10 different parameters on every beer. IBU's got to be within, you know, a few percent, right. just like ABV and everything else. AEOE, all, all <laughs> of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems like a very simple approach to a simple beer. Yeah, there's still nothing simple about it. A you know, hundred yeah. things can go wrong. <laughs> but it's like general, generally pretty smooth. Are there riffs on that that you all have taken lately uh, you know, where you are trying to build on that Liberty idea and, and take it in some different directions? We haven't lately. We did the double Liberty Ale where we mm-hmm. double dry hopped it. That was kind of crazy. Um, I don't think we did any other variations. I mean, we came out with a West Coast IPA this year, which the brewers, all of the brew team really wanted to make uh, a true West Coast. And we're real happy with that. Yeah, Cascade plays a role in IPAs. I mean, that's it, it's a, a hop that we love and know, and it has its place for us and something that we enjoy using. So it, it definitely impacts the way we think about certain IPAs, and we enjoy using it in the dry hop for a lot of things. It's it's a hometown hero for us. Yeah, it plays a supporting role in our in our uh, West Coast IPA. We had a couple of other hops we feature in there that kind of want to speak a little louder. But let's talk about that in a sec. Uh, let's talk about Anchor Porter though first. You know that's that's another one that you know, uh, yesterday as we were walking around, I could just see you, Dane, as you were talking about Anchor Porter that just that making that beer itself gets you excited and, and, you know, brings some warm and fuzzy feelings around, um, you know, talk to me about the, the kind of, you know, baseline of that beer. And, uh, you know, of course, Porter as a style is, uh, not what it used to be in America. Um, certainly a smaller kind of commercial beer, uh, style overall than it may have once have been for, for American craft. Uh, you know, but it's something that's very important to anchor. How did, how did you all, how do you all define that porter, you know, as you all make it and make a, uh, put an anchor spin on it? Well, I like, as Tom was kind of saying earlier, thinking about Fritz expanding the portfolio and thinking about what's next and keeping that hunger alive of, you know, what, what, what do I want to keep stimulating myself with? What do I want to start bringing to the people that maybe is new to them or ha- it's been too long? And, Porter is, it's a great kind of beer. It's a beer that I love to drink myself. One of my favorites in the portfolio and something that's always fun to open people's minds up with if they haven't had it before. Uh, but I, I think Porter is kind of a natural extension from steam. Uh, there is a heavy dose of 40L caramel in there. So that's part of the backbone. It has that similarity to, similarity to steam. Uh, it's also a Croizen beer, um, Liberty Ale that we were just talking about. We bung that beer in the cellar, so it's not Croizen, but steam is always Croizen, uh, another important part of what makes that beer what it is. And uh, Porter shares that element as well, but then, of course, we stack some chocolate malt on that, some black malt on that as well um, to bring those roastier characters. But I, I think Fritz did an incredible job with the recipe, you know, at five just over five, five alcohol, five, six, um, as the target, it's a really drinkable beer. It's dry, uh, but it still has those caramely notes. It's got those refreshing kind of coffee and espresso and chocolate notes, but everything's in good balance and it's all rounded out with Northern Brewer again, similar to tying it back to steam. So it feels like a natural growth off of steam to me and also open fermented, of course, in the ale room. So there's, there's a lot of ties there and I don't know where we'd be without it. I'd be less happy. I know that. <laughs> yeah. And I think Dave told this story yesterday, but when Fritz took over, the two beers that was being offered by Anchor Brewing were 
Anchor Steam Beer and Anchor Steam Dark, which they just put a dose of caramel coloring in. And so that's why Fritz developed Porter first, because he wanted to have a dark beer from Anchor Brewing Company, but it wasn't going to be a doctored steam beer. It was going to be a true English-style porter, all malt. Right, right. Um, are, are there any particular malts that you find give it, uh, you know, the anchor porter character? I'm a big fan of chocolate malt. I think chocolate is a, a really fun malt to play around with, and it does have a good range on it, of course. So yeah. you can you can play with different elements of that. Uh, but I, I think that's my preferred malt and porter that really brings the character that I love most about it. How do you balance all of the, you know, that kind of hop bitterness with that chocolate character? Um, you know, and avoid the kind of acrid or ashy or, uh, you know, less pleasant elements that can come with that, especially in a beer that's this, you know, that light and, uh, and doesn't have a lot of sweetness left in it to help offset that. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a balance to get that bittersweet chocolate note without having it being acrid. And again, it would go back to our sensory. If we saw a problem, we would, you know, make some adjustments in, in our malt bill to correct it. Because it does have a really good balance between bittersweet chocolate, the, the, the caramel, and just a little bit of black malt for almost like that little burnt pizza bubble that you you enjoyed, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah, I love making those kinds of beers, but of course, as brewers, we know it's not not your everyday brew. They're not so the biggest we... sellers. That's, that's <laughs> the issue. Right. You know, people tell you they love them. It's like, well, okay, go well. Oh, and we're in the middle of Christmas sale season. So you were saying how last night I was just really excited about the smells of Porter in the air. And you get used to the smells around the brewery after a few days. So Monday, usually, you know, you can smell it. Tuesday, it's still there. By Wednesday, it's a little bit more subdued. And, you know, we're in the middle of Christmas sale season. So we have been making a lot of um, darker beer. Uh, and, and so we're kind of used to that. But then we also have that spice character that's in the air along with that. So it was nice to have Porter dark and and mysterious and and delicious without the spice so that was kind of a nice way to round things out last night yeah it smells like a bakery when we're making the porter yeah yeah let's talk about uh you know some of you mentioned your 185 brews in over at public taps what are what are some of the other brewing experiments that you've been engaging in over there um that have been finding traction and that may may ultimately find their way into the broader anchor repertoire oh well we we're always playing around. Uh, IPAs are a big part of the game over there. Uh, you know, pounds per barrel go up. It's a lot of fun to experiment with new hops uh, and bring different things in that we'd like and bring us joy. Uh, but then, of course, we have a lot of other beers that are very different and probably not something that the average Anchor Brewing uh, fan is, a, is aware of. So like a kettle sour is a great example. We pretty much always have a kettle sour on. We change it up here and there and we change the fruit every time and explore in that way and have a lot of fun with that but that's a huge seller something that we see people enjoying of course the color is always quite striking uh, so fruit's always a fun thing that we play around with there mm -hmm. we have done a good bit of that on the main brewing system as well with um, beers that we've made in the past but that's something that's really fun We've got some barrels over there, so we have a pretty interesting barrel-aged steam beer on right now, Imperial Steam Beer that was in barrels for years and years, almost five and a half years. Five and a half years? 
Yeah, just some wild stuff that we have around there. So we like to push the envelope. I mean, we've we use different ingredients. We've thrown tea into beer before, you know, different flowers, spices. Christmas Hill is always a good place to experiment with spices, but we try to do other things as well that that we don't get to do in the main brew house all the time. But also just, you know, the IPA game is always fun. We've sure. done cold IPAs, we've done hot IPAs, we've done it all. So always fun. Five years in a barrel. How do you how do you do that, and how do you get a beer that can be drunk after that? Oh well, good question. Oh, they're not all that way, I'm sure. Um, we have quite a stash over there. We've had a little bit of a little bit of this, a little bit of that that we've added to the collection over the years. Something that we're excited to do a little bit more of and start working through some of that stock. Uh, but that was just kind of a lucky find. It was unusual beer. Uh, it's, it's roots were completely unintentional, um, and through and through that was kind of the way, but we found something I mean, we've passed like, you know, during whether it's SF beer week or steam week, we've had various events at public taps and one that's always been a popular one is single barrel tastings. So we know people enjoy that. So it, it's fun to mess around with those, but I love making dark beers too. I mean, dark lagers. So I try to squeeze those in there. Vienna lagers. Mm-hmm up the color on some things. His batting percentage is really good. There's been like, I don't know, two brews, three brews maybe out of that 158 that we were like, eh. Yeah, it, it, somehow it's worked out. You know, sure. If you bring the passion, oftentimes it pays off. When you're pushing uh, you know, your, your steam yeast into uh, higher imperial realms, are there any other concerns that then pop up uh, in terms of yeast health or helping it get there, how do you how do you massage that up into these upper registers? Uh, you know, I haven't really struggled at all. I mean, we've done several. We've done some like you know box with steam beer that mm-hmm. have gotten or with steam yeast that have gotten up there across the street. Uh, you know, we've we've kind of chased it in that seven to eight percent range a handful of occasions, and I didn't really notice much. You know, just a little bit of sulfur at the very end of fermentation, but that usually blows off and. You know, steam steam yeast is really good at cleaning the beer up as long as you give it the time that it needs. Um, you know, that hotter profile can sometimes throw a little bit of off flavors that you might be unaccustomed to, especially if you're not used to dealing with that kind of yeast and that kind of fermentation profile. But usually it cleans up great. And, you know, this steam that we have on right now was really pushing the envelope. I think we were all a little bit nervous about it. It went higher than we were even intending it to. Yeah, we were shooting for nine, and we got to ten. Um, hmm. So, what uh, what's what was the most fascinating thing that you've learned uh, over the last six months in brewing? Uh, you know, some of these uh, experimental beers, something that you may not have expected, but that you discovered through that process of uh, of brewing it. Well, I mean, it's something that I always enjoy about brewing is it has that Zen element of repetition. Uh, but every repetition that you go through is an opportunity to Im- improve on something or learn something. And it gets less and less over over the days and years and what have you. Uh, but it, I, one of my favorite things about brewing is finding that moment when you do learn something. You have a realization that, oh, I could do this this way. I could do this that way. And that's what's fun about playing with a yeast like that that is versatile that we've had a lot of success with is learning, still learning from it, still pushing the envelope, seeing where you can go with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and your ale yeast has been stretched over there yeah. in every direction also. Yeah, we haven't talked too much about that, but same story, you know. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. Sure, 
Sure. Let's pull back a little bit and, and look at it from the big picture. You guys both have long careers here at Anchor, uh, solo careers here at Anchor, and uh, uh, have a lot of years in making these beers. Normally, we'd ask, you know, for a brewery owner what success would look like for them. But clearly, you guys have, you know, committed your your brewing careers here at Anchor. Um, If you're thinking about, you know, sharing some advice with those in a brewing career, younger in their careers, starting out, maybe the way that you were in 1984, Tom, um, what would be some of the best career advice that you could give to a young brewer uh, who wants to get out there and do something in this, this bigger world of brewing. It depends on what, what you're planning on doing in your career. Do you want to be a brewery owner? Do you want to work for a big brewery? Do you want to work for a small brewery? Um, if you want to be an owner, I think you stay small. It's tough to play uh, with the big boys, you know, the mid-sized breweries, I think, uh, have a hard time with when all the distributors are consolidating I think one of the big benefits Fritz had in the early days was he had a unique product and so many distributors were um, like family owned. So people would come out here who owned a distributor, they'd come visit San Francisco and they, they would make this connection with Fritz and uh, they would sell his beer. I think the, the distribution houses, you have a lot more competition within the distribution houses to get any kind of you know, focus on your brand. I don't know. Did I diverge? Sure. <laughs> sure. Off much of more consolidation within the ranks of distributors, much more and that's na- why I national think, footprint for specific major distributors. Yeah. And that's why I think if you want to be an owner that uh, keeping it small would be the right direction, but also perfect your, you know, your craft, you know, what's good. If you're not, if your beer isn't great, you know, work on it work on it. Just like a cook, you can't put a subpar product out there and expect to sell it. What's the, you bring people in and, and obviously Dane, you grew you came in without, you know, with some homebrewing skill, but uh, learned on the job. What is, what does training look like here? And then for Anchor, clearly you all have decades in which to train people because people stick around for that kind of time. But, uh, you know, it is interesting to me that People come and may work in one capacity, whether that's washing kegs, and then they move up and they, you know, get in, you know, ultimately end up in the brew house. Um, you know, what does that education process look like, and how do you bring the rest of the folks along who want to kind of grow their knowledge and get into that side of uh, the brewing brew house? I think patience and pride kind of answers that question as well as the last one too. I mean, brewing is tough. You know, Tom was saying a few things about that too, not too long ago here. And it, you know, repetition, there's a lot to it. It's, uh, you can get a lot out of it. Uh, But I think if you have that pride in what you're doing and you have the positivity um, to keep a smile on your face, you know, things are going to go wrong. Brewing's a capital intensive, machinery intensive operation, uh, no matter how small or large you are. Yeah. Cleaning and, you know, all the things that Fritz taught us from the ground up. Uh, I mean, it, I think leadership is a difficult process of bringing people along, uh, instilling that pride and, uh, you know, building on that. And, and prowess comes out of all that. You know, you really, you see the, the light in people's eyes when they learn something and when they, when they taste something that they know they were responsible for. And, 
And there's just, it's such a great community and a great industry to be in. And I think as long as you stay positive uh, and you keep a smile on your face, the rest kind of comes easy. Well, I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. The Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from beer without sacrificing all the elements. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Fermentus is now offering an expanded range of dry bacteria for the production of sour beers. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. An arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Of course, your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know this content matters to you. And of course, if you are an all-access subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing, you'll get first crack at tickets to our Brewers Retreat. And I was just this morning up in uh, Sonoma County, Santa Rosa, checking out some locations for that. Uh, It's going to be a phenomenal event. And uh, yeah, it's something not to be missed. So become that all access subscriber and get first crack at those tickets. Uh, yeah, there's there's never been a brewing homebrew fantasy camp event like it, and there may not ever be again. So it's gonna be a blast. Uh, Tom and Dane, if people want to learn more about Anchor, where do they find out more about Anchor or come taste the beers uh, that you all make? Anchorbrewing.com uh, for a website. Uh, we are giving tours again. After COVID, we finally opened up for tours. I believe it's Thursday through Sunday. P-Taps is open to the public Wednesday through Sunday, uh, right across the street from the main brewery in San Francisco. I'm looking to add more times and uh, and days to both of those. So, yeah, we're, we're happy to have people back. It's always fun to see people here. Uh, when you work at Public Taps for any number of moments, it's not long before somebody approaches you. You know, the brewery, the brew house is right there. Fermentation's right there. Uh, it's, it's really engaging and, and people aren't shy about sharing their experiences with our brand, something that we really treasure and, and uh, enjoy. So it's, it's good to have people back and we would welcome anybody anytime. I think about the Anchor brand every time I open a beer and every time I have to pull open my keychain and get that little titanium bottle opener off, you know, out there to, I mean, it's the best thing ever. It really is like literally the best bottle opener that's ever been made in the history of bottle openers. You know, the joke about that bottle opener when it came out was it's going to outlive all of us. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's definitely true. Uh, That thing has never met wax on a bottle that it could not take out. And, uh, and Dave was telling me some stories about that, about how uh, when Fritz like, we should make it out of titanium, just all of the the back and forth to try to figure out how to actually make that out of titanium and how many dyes they ruined trying to stamp it before they found out how late. Anyway, um, beautiful, beautiful things. Really appreciate you all talking to me about brewing today. And it's, uh, of course, always fun to, to be here at the Anchor Brewery and this, this kind of uh, soaked in the history of, uh, of beer in America right here. Thanks for joining me. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for coming in, Jamie. Yeah, cheers to everybody out there listening. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.